been first time visiting and you live nearby, we would love to be your church home and would love to talk to you about that. Um, I just want to acknowledge, I don't think I have ever had a whiter tie than this in all my life, but anyway, I just thought I would share that it looked good like up here, so that's why I went with that, that this is, feels like it's wrapping around all the way around here. Wow, and welcome. So glad you're here this morning, digging deeper into the Word. Um, Last week, we were in Colossians. We're in Colossians again. What are we doing? We're in the same chapter again, chapter 1. Last week, um, the topic was about hope. Um, At the end of the message, my son-in-law, Justin, forwarded me a quote of theologian Peter Kuzmik, um, a wonderful comment about hope. It's this. Hope is the ability to hear the music of the future. Faith is the courage to dance to it in the present. Oh, some of you like that. The rest of you, I think you were reading the bulletin still. So I'm going to give it to you one more time just in case you missed that. Hope is the ability to hear the music of the future. Faith is the courage to dance to it in the present today. Just wanted to dance on that. That just feels right. This week is about hope again. Paul's staying on this subject. You may not see it at first glance in this passage, but there is this beautiful way in which the notion of hope begins to unfold in multiple layers in this chapter. For those of you that weren't here, or just as a refresher, this is written to the church at Colossae, which is a church that is located about 100 miles east of um, Ephesus. The reason I even mention Ephesus is that that was the central city of that region. Certainly not as significant of a hub as Rome was, and this is all part of the Roman Empire, but a very significant city in that region, Colossae, a much smaller town, actually part of a tri-city area that included Laodicea and Hierapolis, and all three of these communities were in a very strategic place that was part of the market route from the Orient to the Aegean Sea, and they were known for their textiles, Colossae in particular known for its purple fabrics, It was a place of commerce, a place of ideas, a crossroads for multiple cultures. Paul, it doesn't appear, was ever in that community, but sent people from Ephesus, where he had been, to Colossae to share the good news. And he hears about how they're doing and writes a letter, at least that's what we believe took place, likely though again, not certain. We don't know because the letter wasn't dated, Um, but likely taking place in the early 60s of um, the era after Christ. And shortly after this letter was written, somewhere around 62 AD, there was an enormous earthquake that took place that destroyed those three tri-cities, or at least portions of them, Laodicea was rebuilt. It became kind of the significant hub in that area. It appears as if the residents of Colossae 
either because the devastation was greater or their fear that it might happen again, that most of them relocated. So we know it is an ancient community, but not a current community, because we don't think it survived the after effects of that earthquake. So in all likelihood, several years before this, this letter comes to the church at Colossae. And Paul begins by saying, I give thanks for you every time I pray for you. And I loved a few weeks ago when Melissa spoke. She started the message with just an expression of gratitude to this congregation, and I join her in that. I, I am so grateful for your grace when I say too much and your patience when I say too little. I am grateful for your critique that so often comes with kindness and is so constructive and the times where I need your encouragement because my skin's too thin and you seemingly know that and offer those kinds of words of encouragement. I'm grateful for a place like this to be on the journey together. Can't imagine a group of people I'd rather be on the journey with than this group right here. So I thank my God because of you and for you and who you are in your journey. When I think of what then Paul does next is he begins to speak about hope, but in this particular passage, we find some very interesting expressions that move us toward that notion of hope. And that's where I'd love to begin with us together, and that is in the area of verses 15 and 16, where we are told by Paul, or the writer of this letter, that Jesus is the visible expression or representation of the invisible God. It's a very powerful notion. I know you've heard me say this before, a question that I borrowed from Brennan Manning. We often don't have much problem believing that Jesus was God-like. Do we really believe that God is Jesus-like? Here, we are told by the writer of this letter that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Carries this a step further in saying that through Christ or in Christ, all things were made, and they are held together, both things in heaven and on earth, both things visible and invisible. Maybe you've heard somebody comment that the only thing they ever believe in is that which they can actually see. Um, I have no doubt that a person who says that believes that it's true, it just isn't true. I, I'm rarely that dogmatic about things, but we are driven by so many things that we don't see. It may be that you don't believe in it, but it has such profound influence on your life and on my life. We have imprinted it on us. Um, a DNA code that dictates much of how things unfold in terms of our growth, our development, how we look, but not just the looks side of things. It gives us predispositions to certain things. It makes us susceptible to certain things in our environment. It makes us resistant to other things in our environment. 
all of that we don't see. Now, I know that scientists have decoded DNA and can map out the human genome, and in so doing, they can see markers that will tell us something about propensities that we might have. I think it is certainly fair to say that what we know by looking at that is minuscule compared to what is there. There is so much that is still mystery, that is still unknown, because we're not driven simply by DNA codes within us. We are affected and molded by experiences that we have as well. Now, we may be able to have seen those experiences, but the aftermath, the imprinting, the effect on our emotions, on our journey, the way in which we filter experiences now, all of that's invisible. I can't see the filters that you have that you use to decode facial expression, body language, vocal tones. The filters you have are different than the filters I have. They're there, they affect how we live, but they are invisible. They are invisible to us. We, all of us, have certain addictions that drive us or that affect our reactions, our interactions. It's true that we can see the consequences or the outcomes of those addictions. Behavior that results from the things that pull us, drive us, move us, push us. But that which creates the appeal of the thing to which I am addicted, that's invisible to me. Now, I can try and describe it, but I'm trying to describe to you something that's going on inside of me. Something that is an attractive force that, that just moves me almost, it feels like, without thought at times. We take that a layer deeper into the invisible. And what is it that gives that addiction or attraction such power? Well, it, it can be my brokenness. It can be a result of an experience I had quite some time ago that has left me with a sense of emptiness that I'm trying to fill that void, a sense of loss that I still haven't processed that grief, a, a pain, a fear that I try and cover over or fill with something that never quite satisfies, but I keep going back to over and over and over again. There's so much that's invisible that's beyond what I actually see. What's interesting is that Scripture says all things, visible and invisible, heaven and earth, held together by Christ. I love one of the translations that says that in Christ there's no crowding, there's room for everything, there's no shortage of space. When we find our place in Christ, there is room for all of those things and all that needs to be done with those things. God has no shortage of resources. I might, but God does not. 
and to recognize that Christ holds all of these things together, not yet fulfilled, maybe not yet complete, but they have been created in and through and held together by Christ. This, this is then where the writer begins to portray this notion of hope. The hope is in what has not yet happened. It is the music of the future. It's hearing that melody or tune or baseline that you know there's something out there that seems to be coming, seems to be working its way toward us, but is not here yet. But somehow deep inside, it just feels like it's getting closer. And in the midst of that, a willingness to step in to what that music portrays. It is a combination of what we have talked about that we, we have this sense of what is coming. We look back and see what God has done in the past and then we ask, oh Lord, help me to live in the present, in the moment, in such a way that reflects both of these, that acknowledges your grace, your working, your provision in the past, but also moves me into that which is coming, the completion of your work of which maybe I get to be a part Thanks be to God for that privilege. Into this place, we come to a verse that's not part of our reading this morning, but is central to this whole conversation. It's Colossians 1.27. It speaks about the mystery. And here's what I want to preface this by saying, that it's key, I think, that the writer uses the words mystery because there's enough literature that makes us believe that at the time that this is written, the more popular religions of the time were called mystery religions. They are religions that had a, um, some char common characteristics among them not singular in nature, there are many of them that had secret rituals only known to those who were invited to be part of this mystery. If it was today, it would be secret handshakes that went along with it, and maybe they had them back then as well, but they had um, sacred, secret banquets that at the banquets you would have certain rituals that would go along with them. But they were mysterious in nature, outsiders weren't aware of what was going on, it was offered as insider information for those who were part of that group, it would include fasting and prayer and ascetic practices for many of the groups. Well, in this passage in chapter 1, Paul uses the phrase mystery. And it seems very unique to Paul's effort to try and communicate 
to this group of people in contrast to what they were experiencing in their community. Because, as I said, this is a crossroads of culture, greatly influenced by Greek thought, Roman culture, the Orient that would come through there in trade routes. And so there's this belief that Jesus was a really good person who had a lot of good things to say, along with a whole lot of other really good people who had a lot of good things to say. And others who would say, Jesus sure seemed superhuman, but, but we're not sure we believe that Jesus is divine. Jesus is um, certainly a source of very good thinking, but one of many. And it's into this space that Paul writes about the supremacy of Christ in a very loving, compelling, flavorful way. And so as Paul speaks about mystery, we come to a line that says, let me tell you what that mystery is. So I want you to hear in the context of groups and religions that had this protected information, Paul is saying, so let me just reveal the, in the mystery for everyone. You don't have to be part of any club. You don't have to know any secret handshake. The mystery is this. Christ in you. That's the gospel for which I'm giving my whole life, says Paul. That's the mystery. It's strange the things you remember. I, I don't know if you have a memory that comes back to you. You go, wow, where did that come from? That just seems out of the blue. And then why other things? You just can't seem to remember where your keys are or something like that. I, but I, I have this memory of being at a university that had mandatory chapel and sitting in chapel one particular morning. We had assigned seating and we sat in alphabetical order so that the chapel checkers could figure out who was there and who wasn't there. This is before scanner days. So for two years, I sat right next to Debbie Kelly Debbie was two years older than I was, so for her junior and senior year, my freshman and sophomore year, she sat right to my right. They would jumble up the kind of where the letters would be in the auditorium so that the Zs weren't always on the back row or the As on the front row. So this particular semester, we were center section about three quarters of the way back, slightly to the right-hand side. And I remember the speaker this morning his name was Bob Benson. Bob Benson, at the time, was CEO of Benson Publishing Company. And he had this incredibly quiet um, voice. It, you had, even with a sound system, you had to kind of lean in to actually hear what he was saying. Not the kind of salesperson that you might expect from somebody who is running a significant publishing company. And his message was not what you'd expect from somebody who's running a publishing company, because I remember very clearly what he said about his reading patterns. Makes sense. He's about books. He's talking about books. And he critiqued what was a trend of that time which was learning speed reading. 
there was a course out called Evelyn Wood's Speed Reading Course. And I'm thinking if you're under 50 years of age, you've never heard that name before. But there were a few of you that laughed out and gave up yourself in that moment. Evelyn Wood had this speed reading technique that was the rave of the country and beyond. I don't remember all of it, but I do recall that instead of reading like left to right across a page, you'd place your finger in the middle of the page and you'd go vertically down the page and train yourself to capture the information that was on either side of this movement of your hand down and work your way quickly through the page, trusting that you were absorbing this thing and just do that on the next, I never really got it. I'm a terribly slow reader. I just plod through a book and it is reading like just, you can see my head move, much less my eyes as I just go across. And I thought I would never get this Evelyn Wood thing, and I never did. So Bob Benson is speaking, and he, without calling out Evelyn Wood, because it helped so many people, he simply said, you know, I'm a plotter when it comes to reading. I love to just chew on a sentence for a while. I love to drink in a phrase and just kind of turn it over again and again. And that morning, he was speaking on Colossians 1.27. And I remember him saying, I'm afraid that if I was moving too rapidly through this letter to the church, that I would miss the whole point. Because it's all wrapped up in three little words. And the most important word is just two little letters. And it's this, Christ in you. It is this anchor point. It is the gospel message. The mystery's been revealed. It is as if the writer of this letter has right in front of them Jesus' words from the Gospel in John, where Jesus is challenged, challenged when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And one of the disciples speaks up and says, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And the response is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Don't you understand that this is true? If you don't believe that, then at least believe on the miracles that you've seen. I had this wonderful conversation with Jeremiah earlier this week, and his comment about this passage was that that concession to the disciples was, if if you don't get the invisible side of this, if you really need it, then at least pay attention to what you've seen. But as you dig into what Jesus says in chapter 14 and chapter 15, he talks about the vine and the branches. And he said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and we are one and you are in me and I am in you. 
It's almost as if that passage is right before the author of Colossians. When he opens up and says, and this is the mystery. This is it. This is the secret handshake that forever will be known to everyone, Christ in you. I had the great fortune as a kid of um, having a grandmother that lived in a cabin on a lake, and so in the summers we'd go up. You've heard me make mention of that. And When I was a little kid, my, my dad had somehow gotten a hold of a raft, a, a, a raft that was this large white wooden frame, and underneath were, were four metal drums that held it suspended on the top of the water, floating beautifully, and had to pull it out during the winter because the frozen lake would destroy those drums, but early in the summer, at the end of spring, he'd find some people to help him, and he'd get the raft off of the front yard of my grandmother's property and into the water until it was just past the shallow end so it could float, and you push it out, and straight out from the house property, my dad had um, sunk a, a, a concrete drum that was about this big. It stuck up above the ground about, oh, probably a little over a foot, foot and a half maybe. And it was in water that was somewhere around five and a half, six feet deep as a kid. It was just too deep for me to actually touch the bottom. I had to dog paddle all the way when I got the last 10 feet out to where that anchor was. But if I could find the anchor, it was just tall enough that if I could stand on it with my tippy toes, I could stand there out from the property, breathe without having water go in my nose, and that was the spot where the raft was anchored. There was a chain that came up from that solid piece of concrete and attached to this eye hook that was on the underside, and once those two things were hooked together, this became the focal spot for all kinds of wonderful summer lake activity. We would dive off the raft, climb back on, dive again. We would play shark and minnows where somebody was on the top and you'd be under the raft waiting for your opportunity, trying to hear where their steps were above you and swim as close to the, the bottom of the lake bed as possible and swim as far as you could till you got out there hoping you could catch your breath before whoever it was that was on the raft would jump on you and tag you and you'd be the one that was it. Played over and over and over again. We'd be on top of the raft and people who had boats would come up and they'd dock up alongside of this raft and for those who had the great opportunity to hop in the boat and get a ride around the lake, it was just magical. And you watch as they'd come and the way they would operate the boat, they'd be coming straight at you and then right when they got about five feet away, they'd turn it sideways and like a runner sliding into second base, it would just slide up against the raft and we'd hold it up against it. It was just an adventure after an adventure. It was the hub of activity. It was the central place from which so many things happened all the way around for my imagination and my activity as a kid. I feel like that's exactly what Colossians 1.27 is. It is the anchor that holds one steady. It is the place where activity just seems to fan out in all directions. It's, it's a central meeting point. Sometimes when, when you feel like you're adrift, all of a sudden it's as if that, that tether to the anchor point catches, and you go, okay, I feel it. I'm steady again. 
it is that place where when fear sets in, I can retreat and go, oh, this is the place where I'm standing. And you know what it's like when fear sets in. It's so often tied to the unknown. It's like driving a car and getting turned around at the wrong spot and you GPS has run out of juice and it's no good to you anymore and so you take another turn just thinking I'm going in the right direction. You're in a city you don't know, going through neighborhoods that are unfamiliar. It's not so much what you can see in that moment. It's what you can't see. It's the unknown that starts to increase the anxiety, that starts to add to the fear. The same is true when we're working towards some end and something that wasn't anticipated throws us off. It's the unknown of what's next that starts us in a bit of a spiral. It's when circumstances for which we didn't plan all of a sudden begin to dominate our thinking and our vision and we can't see around it and it's that unknown that begins to turn in on itself. And it's hard to catch your breath. And you're wondering what's going to be next. It's in that place, if we can sense it, that tethered to that anchor point where we believe that God in us holds us steady. It is hearing the music of the future. And all of a sudden, the steps begin to change as I start listening to something that's other than me, that's bigger than me, that's hopeful beyond me. I like to plan. I tend to be a goal setter. And one of the characteristics of goals, at least from my perspective, is that goals typically have the end in mind. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a helpful thing, that when you're establishing goals, you have some idea of what the end should look like. You have that in mind. I would like to draw a distinction, though. That's helpful. It's not necessarily hopeful. Helpful is me having the end goal, the end in mind, hopeful is knowing the one who has the end in hand. Hopeful is not determining the outcome, it's trusting the one who can manage the outcome. It is as if God is saying, not only have I got this, but more importantly, I've got you. And Jesus would add, and you've got me. And that makes all the difference. Hope moves me from being driven by the circumstances to being embraced by the one in whom I put my trust.
this becomes the anchor for the journey of the life of faith. It is the one who keeps dancing, not out of ignorance, but out of relationship. It is the one who keeps taking steps, not because everything I see makes sense, but because I'm drawn to the music, the music of hope. And it's into this place that we are offered the anchor point of hope, Christ in you. Thanks be to God that the mystery is disclosed. No more secret handshakes. You can share it with anyone you want. And I've got to tell you, it's needed. Because we all face circumstances that seem larger than life, bigger than us, and the truth is, they probably are. And thanks be to God, Christ holds all of those things, both visible and invisible. And that's where we place our hope. Father, we do pray for courage. It seems preposterous to dictate to you what outcomes should be. But it does seem appropriate for you to hear our heart's cry for whatever those outcomes might be. You've invited us to share it all. But to cling on to hope. So Lord, for many of us, that's a hard thing to do. Thank you that we do this in community where people hold up hope for us, where people hold us in the midst of whatever we face. So Lord, could you draw us into the dance of today? Could we feel the tether of your love? You've not called us into a discipline of love, but to be recipients of your love and then allow what happens as a result of that to be the character of our life, to be the grace of our journey, to be the hope of our spirit. So this morning, Lord, as we sing, will we step into the truth that has been through the ages to accept you into our heart, to invite you to be in us. It seems no surprise that this phrase has been at the heart of the gospel message for ages, because it's just another way of saying, oh Lord, be in me. It's never been, Lord, that we've not had access to you. We've always had access to you. It's just that you have waited for us to give you access to us. So all of the ways in which we have held back, held off, 
reserved, licked our own wounds. This morning, Lord, could we open up ourselves and say, oh, Jesus, have free access to who we are. Both visible and invisible, work your way into our life. May this morning hope be renewed. And because of that, Lord, our faith leads us into the dance of a lifetime. Amen.